Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast with David Campbell and Don Mills. Uh, This week we have a very special podcast for you, Don. We're going to actually summarize everything we've done over the last 35 podcasts and take a look, uh, look to the future. Uh, that's right, David. And, and Mark, uh, Mark Legere is going to join us today and, and help moderate our discussion. We, we are trying to look backwards and see what we've learned. Um, what are the lessons? Um, you know, are we making any kind of a difference to the public policy discussion? I think those are all topics that we should address in this current podcast. So, Mark, maybe you can uh, take us through that discussion, will you? Absolutely. And I'm so happy to join you guys. Thanks for inviting me on the show. A, a good starting point, David and Don, might be to, you know, go back to the beginning. I mean, 35 episodes in here now already um, and review kind of how you guys, you know, thought this podcast would evolve, why you wanted to start with start it, where you wanted to go with it. It might be good to kind of start there. I was thrilled to be partnering with Don Mills. He's a I've known Don the 30 years I've been around. I've known Don Mills and the work at CRA and the public policy work and his passion for regional economic development. So partnering up with him uh, on this was exciting. And I think it has in many ways met my expectations. We've talked to really great people, entrepreneurs and policymakers and thought leaders. Uh, And so I think, you know, I mean, I think there's room for improvement. We'll talk about that today. But I think on the whole, it has certainly met my uh, my expectation, and I hope the, the listeners as well. Yeah, and if I could add to that, I think, you know, uh, David and I bring a unique combination uh, to the topics that we're talking about. Obviously, I mean, uh, David is an economist, and I'm, a, I guess, a social scientist is kind of the term um, that I would use just to, to bring kind of public opinion into the uh, discussion where I can. One of the things that we've really tried to do, I, I think, David, in every podcast is bring data to the fight. <laughs> so, you know, um, I always found that it's hard to, to argue against facts. And, and so we've spent a lot of time talking about numbers and uh, trying to interpret what they mean. I think the conversations that we're having with the guests that we're having are really uh, trying to promote uh, that as well. And of course, what we're what we're really trying to do with the podcast is talk about maybe some of the solutions that are possible to the to the challenges that we face in this region. And so far, I think we've done a reasonably good job on that. I actually would like to see us do a little bit more on uh, talking about the the things that need to be done, and and maybe uh, uh, you know promoting uh, more of the solutions to the challenges that we face. Yeah, and I know for for me too, and bringing you you two guys together uh, was also the, the you know the Atlantic wide perspective that you would bring because I know you know, I know both of you work in 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 both provinces in all four provinces, and we're talking about the Atlantic, you know. But having you Don uh, firmly rooted in Nova Scotia, and David you in in New Brunswick, but also the work that you do, you know, in PEI and Newfoundland, and and the understanding that you bring, you know, from talking to people in those regions has also been great, right? Because I know David. When you'd done your original podcast, it was it was focused a lot on New Brunswick, and and it's 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 really been nice to bring that that Atlantic wide uh, aspect to this conversation. Well, I think that that's right. You know, uh, um, each of us has a fair amount of knowledge of each of the individual individual provinces. You know, I spent four decades; <laughs> I've been everywhere in Atlantic Canada. That, that's willing to listen to me. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of background knowledge that that is helpful, and 
And there's not, uh, I don't think there's many people that have the broad perspective that David and I bring uh, to the discussion, just because we have a really deep interest in Atlantic Canada. Like I've had a deep interest in Atlantic Canada for a long time. One of the things that I keep talking about is that if you look at Atlantic Canada, in Canada, there's no region anywhere else of combination of provinces that has the kind of deep relationships that Atlantic Canadians have to each other. And we have similar problems, very similar problems. And it's a little harder to include Newfoundland and Labrador in that discussion because of distance, but certainly in the Maritimes, uh, you know, we have a great affinity for each other. And uh, I think that that's unique and we should take advantage of that, especially when it comes to public policy uh, solutions. I agree with that. And I think moving forward, we should even have more discussions and more people on to discuss how we could better cooperate across the Maritimes and Atlantic Canada, because I do, I do think that's an untapped opportunity. I had a conversation this morning with some folks about the construction sector and the labor shortage while PEI is doing something very innovative. And my recommendation to the group here in New Brunswick was, well, don't reinvent the wheel. Just look at what PEI is doing. So more coordination around immigration, around workforce development, around promoting the region, all of these things that we're all talking about, uh, I think there's a real opportunity there. So I do think, yeah, moving forward, that Atlantic focus uh, uh, should be uh, should come more into view here. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I know you know we there you know we share uh, a lot in common. But I know, as you both know, but I definitely though from a media perspective, we can also all end up in our own siloed communities, right? Whether it's St. John, Fredericton, Moncton, St. John's, Newfoundland, Halifax, Charlottetown, and uh, the, you know, this podcast is, you know, from my point of view, a special opportunity to bring us together around these these kinds of conversations, it's especially with uh, your knowledge of, of all of all four of them. So I think it, it is a great opportunity. And, you know, and there's lots of themes and, and issues you guys will explore kind of going forward. Uh, a question for you um, to kind of kick this off is you, what are some of the common themes that, that you guys have seen over, over six months or so of doing these podcasts together? David? Uh, well, so I, for me, the big one is uh, population growth. So whether we're talking about the need to fill the workforce or rural development or urban development, it just seems almost every time we talk to somebody, this issue of needing to rejuvenate population, attract more younger uh, folks and younger families to our region t- tends to keep coming up over and over again. So I would say that's a common theme uh, 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 that uh, we've seen over these uh, 35 podcasts. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that is the, the major uh, theme that we see. And uh, one thing I was looking at uh, the most recent population data, David, I don't know if you saw this came out recently. Uh, Nova Scotia is uh, very close to a million people now. Um and we expect to, you know, to exceed that in the next few months. That's going to be a milestone that's important. But I, it, the total population in Atlantic Canada has grown. And it's, uh, I think it's now approaching 2.6 million. Is that right? You know, um, that's, uh, that's important because, uh, you know, that's economic activity, obviously, that goes with that. Uh, the housing market's booming all all across the region, with maybe the exception of Newfoundland, which is dragging on the population side. But it's a very good sign, you know. We're in uh, we're in a growth mode in most of the region, especially in the Maritimes, and I think that that's really great news. Uh, and and I think that even in Newfoundland, where they're struggling with the population, 
they recognize now firmly that they need to grow their population. And you might have noticed that this past week, they announced a, a program to bring Newfoundlanders back to Newfoundland uh, starting in 2022. So uh, they're going to try to repatriate some of their, um, uh, you know, uh, residents to come back. That's a good step. Uh, they have to do a lot more than that. But, you know, I, I think there's universal recognition, David, that we need to grow the population. We need more immigrants. And we need to realize that we have a labor force challenge that uh, goes across every industry and every province everywhere. Yeah, it started with PEI. Sorry, Mark. It started with PEI. I'd say Nova Scotia kind of picked up the mantle second, then New Brunswick, and now Newfoundland and Labrador, the premier uh, of that province a few weeks ago, announced they wanted uh, significant new immigration. And as you said, they just launched their Come Home in 2022 campaign, which is very, very exciting uh, uh, for the region as well. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's an important common theme. And I'm sure as we can move forward, we'll continue to talk about ways to get that done. Yeah. And I, w- I was going to say, David, I noticed that you had, you had touched on that in, uh, one of the, the blogs that you, uh, wrote in, in the last week. And, uh, I, I know you guys are both hard numbers guys, but David, I, I was surprised to see you with your heart on your sleeve in that, in that piece saying that uh, the other provinces could be making the same kind of impassioned pleas that uh, the Newfoundlanders still seem to be able to make uh, to to their expat populations to return home. There's just something about Newfoundland and Labrador. You see it in Cape Breton too. I was out walk, taking a walk the other day and somebody's license plate said, uh, you know, born in, Cape, born in Cape Breton and now exiled elsewhere or something like that. There's <laughs> something about, something in the water in Newfoundland and Labrador, maybe it's because it's an island, but Cape Breton too, that even if you leave it, you never actually leave it. Your heart is always left. And I don't see that same feel in New Brunswick and even Nova Scotia to some extent, uh, except for like Acadians and certain populations. But for the most part, I think if Nova Scotia tried that, come home, you know, move back here initiative, it might not have the same resonance as it has in Newfoundland and Labrador. Every time they make a big announcement, they say this is for Newfoundlanders in, in the province and those elsewhere in the world. And I don't know if blue nosers living in Alberta still consider themselves primarily Nova Scotian uh, or not. But at the end of the day, I do think that there's some learning there about putting down roots, about being proud of your community, even as we get more global, you know, still understanding we live in local communities and those communities matter and being proud of those communities and working to make strong communities. Uh, needs to be part of our focus, even as we look outward and try to become more global in our ambition. And but, but you know, let's be let's be really honest here. That uh, the repatriation of people in Atlantic Canada is only a small part of the answer. Um, and the immigration numbers support that it's happening for sure. But you have to realize who who will come back. Who will come back? If you're in Alberta and you spent 20 years building a career and a, and a, and a family of friends, it's, you're not coming back. You're not coming back. If, if you've been out there for three years or five years and you think, I'm homesick, I want to come back, you will. If you're at the end of your career and you want to retire, you're going to come home. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a great solution to the population. It's part of the solution, but it's, it, it's a, I think it's a small part, David, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's going to fit uh, specific holes in the workforce, but in general, the, uh, as is the case in the rest of Canada, 
immigration is going to be the major driver of population workforce uh, growth in the years ahead. And if we do attract some from other provinces, that's going to be, uh, I think, gravy. Uh, but we can't lose sight of the fact that Canada is having these demographic challenges, you know, from coast to coast. And so that's just sort of uh, moving uh, chess pieces around the board uh, when what we really need to do is expanding the number of pieces on the board, which is a terrible analogy. But anyway. <laughs> One of the things that you'll note is that uh, the new newly minted uh, Premier of Nova Scotia has identified his population growth as 2 million people in the next uh, number of uh, years. Uh, I, I don't know what the target date is. I forget. <clears throat> I think we should have Tim Houston on talk about that, what that means, um, you know, how, how they're going to accomplish that, because that would, uh, you know, that's a big number, doubling the population. Um, and uh, can we do it by the, you know, the end of the century? Maybe, but it's not, a, it's not going to happen overnight. And, and, and the big, the other big problem that, with that number is that you have to absorb new, uh, you know, uh, comers to the province without disrupting the economy. And <clears throat> I've always said 1%, 1.5%, that's fine. 3%, <laughs> not as easy. And, you know, we don't have the social uh, capability to support people until they find a job at, at that rate. So there are some, there are some limitations uh, based on our capacity uh, to support people coming to the province. And we have to do it on what I would call under control. And uh, so I think maybe we should ask him to come on to our podcast and, and, and see what, he, what he's thinking there. But you also have to have the public support because I think people like the fact in this region that we have lower, slower, less commute times to work and we have you know, the population isn't overly congested and so on. So when we make the case that we need to attract people here to ensure we can continue to provide good public services and have the workforce uh, uh, supply for the demand, I think people are really starting to get that across Atlantic Canada. But when you start about talking about doubling the population, that's something that goes way beyond just meeting workforce demand over the next 10 or 20 years. So you have to have a vision for that. What's the purpose of that, as you say, uh, and then you have to communicate that clearly to the population, because I think, you know, most people in this part of the country don't necessarily want highly congested cities with, with, with you know, very, very high housing costs and all of the things that might come with that. So they get the argument for 1%, Don, 1.5% maybe. I'm not sure they get the argument for 25 or 3 and so, yeah, we should have him on to try and understand the logic of the 2 million. And New Brunswick has talked about 1 million. But that's right. only going from 780 to a million. Uh, and yeah. that's probably a good target because that would probably give us enough workforce to drive 2% growth in the economy over the next 20 years or 30 years. Yeah. But 2 million, doubling the size of your population is a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. And it's worth uh, having a conversation. And by the way, just to emphasize one of the points that we, we talked about in the past, there are six uh, kind of cities in Atlantic Canada that will disproportionately grow relative to the rest of the region. So, you know, we're talking about Halifax maybe going to a million people uh, in, in whatever time frame. Uh, you know, that's a different city than it is at 460, wherever it is right now. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we, have, we already have uh, some transportation uh, issues um, because most of the population lives in a, on a peninsula with, with very limited uh, in and out access. So, yeah interesting topic for a future podcast for sure. 
Yeah, and he, uh, the premier, would definitely be a great guest. I hope you can get him on soon for sure. Um, thinking about uh, your, you know, your past episodes in in light of this conversation, I'd like to reflect a little bit on some of the guests that you've had over over the months. And this might be, uh, you know, a good place to start. Sort of taking it, kind of issue by issue as they've come up. Um, on the population question, uh, you know, what what past episodes stand out for you, and what uh, what what interviews that you've done. Well, for me, uh, the, the one that uh, that I personally uh, got a lot from because it's uh, I hadn't thought about it is the uh, the one that we had with Daryl Bricker, uh, who talked about uh, declining world population, which is uh, you know which is a new pretty new idea, and when we depend on immigrants the way that we do, we're going to have four hundred thousand in the next year or so coming in, four hundred thousand from somewhere else. If the population, of course, begins to decline um, as it has already in places like Japan and China, which are China especially is a big source of immigrants to Canada, you know, they're going to want to hold on to those people. Uh, it's going to be more difficult to attract uh, immigrants from countries that are in population decline, and that's a that you know that's a that's a ways off, I think, but still, it's something to start thinking about now because if we're going to continue to ramp up our immigration to 400,000, half a million. Can you imagine half a million people coming into this country a year? Uh, we're at uh, we're at 38 million right now. You know, that's a lot more than 1% growth. It's aggressive, you know, but that, you know, I think that the source of immigrant immigration is likely to become tougher in the years ahead uh, just because of what's happening on the uh, population growth uh, side. So I, I found that... Uh, that to be a very interesting um, um, podcast. I, I think it might have surprised a lot of people, and I, I really like the research that they did to support that uh, that conclusion. So I, I really enjoyed the, that conversation with Daryl. And I, I think we're going to have him back on. By the way, he's written another book. Uh, I think it's called Next, which talks about uh, you know uh, the changes to society in, in, in Canada. I have to read the book first, but <laughs> I think he would be another guest worth bringing back. Yeah, and that was a particularly interesting one for me too, because I mean, so much, so much of our talk about economic growth is is predicated upon population growth, right? So, what happens? How do you how do you grow economies if if the global population starts to shrink? Yeah, and, and I just want to make this point to reemphasize it for our listeners. Um, I realized uh, only in the last few years that one of our challenges that we have in economic growth is that we haven't had the population growth dividend that everybody else has. You know, if you grow your population 1% a year, at a minimum, those people have to be housed and fed, <laughs> which creates economic activity. Well, if you don't have that 1% growth in your population, which has really been the case for Atlantic Canada for quite some time, there's no way that your economy is going to grow as fast as the rest of the country. And so one of the reasons why we've trailed economic growth forever in Atlantic Canada, now that has changed. And I think you'll see that economic growth will start to, will start to narrow the gap, at least with the rest of the country, because our population is growing, uh, especially uh, in the Maritimes, at a reasonable rate. One of the little interesting wrinkles, though, with the Bricker analysis is that there are a number of French-speaking communities, countries in uh, North Africa and other places that are actually growing very rapidly. And in fact, 
There was an article recently in The Economist suggesting that the French language is going to be one of the fastest growing languages in the world uh, between now and 2050 because of this demographic dividend in these countries, mostly African countries uh, mm. uh, that speak French. So that actually might be a, an opportunity for us because we have, you know, particularly in New Brunswick here, we have large uh, French-speaking communities. But even in Nova Scotia, there's a number of French-speaking communities like Clare and elsewhere uh, that are going to need to grow their population. So that's one little wrinkle because I think you're absolutely right. If you're talking about a China, which is now getting rapidly old and not having being able to replace itself demographically, they're going and Japan and others, they're going to be really uh, facing real challenges. But you do have some countries in the world. Uh, particularly in Africa, that are actually growing very, very strongly and still have a surplus of, uh, of, of workers uh, that may, many of them may want to uh, immigrate to places like Canada. So there's a little niche, I think, opportunity there. But even in Latin America, countries like Argentina and Brazil, uh, in the last two generations, they've seen their birth rates decline dramatically and they're facing many of the same prob problems demographically that, uh, that we are here in the north. In terms of the the you know the population discussion, a couple of the episodes that you guys did uh, with with leading business figures in the region, I think in particular of the conversation with uh, Jim Irving from JDI, but also the conversation with uh, with um, John Bragg from from Oxford around you know the labor force challenges and the ways in which they you know they need to fairly aggressively act you know to 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 have the right labor force in those in those small communities i mean oxford is smaller uh st john is you know a larger urban community uh but both you had both had interesting conversations with them about about population growth and labor force this is what i like about business leaders right they're they have deployed capital and they can't fool around they need to find the workers that they need uh at competitive wages and so yeah so these these business leaders it's top of mind for them I, the jim irving conversation was very very beneficial and helpful uh and you talk about saint john yeah but they have operations all over the province sussex and saint leonard and other places where they're struggling to find workers in rural communities they're they're they've had to bring in brazilian workers to to harvest trees in deersdale uh so yeah they it's top of mind for these big business leaders and i think that sort of, um, you know, they can't fool around, right? They, if, if they can't address their workforce demand, it's going to impact their profitability and their success as a company. So that's one of the things that's refreshing, you know, when you talk to these business leaders and we had an opportunity, as you said, to talk to many uh, in over the last 35 uh, podcasts here. And that's, you know, they, that's the bottom line. It's not theoretical for them. If they can't find workers at competitive uh, rates, they may not be able to maintain their operations in in the region and and don't forget uh, jdi is a big company um uh jim indicated in his conversation with us that he's going to need nearly eight thousand new employees over the next three years he, he he realizes that they're not available in the marketplace i mean that's why they're recru recruiting in different countries like poland for truck drivers and brazil for you know, force workers. I mean, that that they they recognize that they need to actively recruit, and they do. They're actually in other countries recruiting, um, and I think that there's a there's an opportunity for other companies to learn from that example. And in fact, there may even be an opportunity to coordinate some efforts for companies that are maybe not necessarily in competition with each other 
to uh, you know uh, bring together their efforts to uh, look at recruitment uh, strategies and and maybe combining efforts to uh, bring people from uh, certain countries, certain communities to to uh, you know create what I call cri- critical mass. We talked about this before. You know, it's one thing to get people into this region uh, as immigrants. Uh, it's another one to keep to keep them, let them, uh, you know, get them to stay. And I think that you know some of the things that companies like the Bragg Group and and JDI they they're actually focusing on that effort of not just uh, attraction but retention, making sure they have good housing, they're getting good uh, supports for you know how to live as a Canadian. They actually, I think JDI. He said he had a dozen people working on this within the company, you know, in terms of immigrant attraction and retention. I mean, that's a big commitment. And it shows uh, the importance uh, that they place on immigration as a as one of the resolutions to the current and future labor shortages that we're going to encounter. And I know I know listeners would have really appreciated those conversations you had with uh, with with uh, business leaders like that. I mean, I really enjoy the you know the overview conversations you have with a lot of the thought leaders in the in the region, and we can touch more on those uh, later in this episode. But you know, having those conversations with uh, the John the John Braggs and and the Jim Irvings, uh, you know, there are special opportunities to have you know long thoughtful conversations with people that have been building businesses and for generations in this region and, you know, continue to need to make them grow and, and prosper. Right. And that well, it's, it's rare. Like I don't know the last time Jim Irving sat down for an hour and talked through these many issues. I mean, that is, I don't know, John Bragg. I mean, the, it's rare. And I think it has to do with maybe with Don Mills's reputation. I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but they agreed to sit down and, and talk to us for a full hour. One of the things I appreciate about business leaders like that is they understand the value of time. And so for them to, to allocate an hour for these conversations, I think has been very helpful for us and for the listeners. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I'm very pleased to get both those individuals to, uh, to be uh, part of our podcast because, uh, you know, you don't hear from them publicly very often unless it's on an issue, you know, for them to talk generally about uh, what's going on in their businesses is uh, it's not only rare, it's almost non-existent it doesn't really happen so you know i think that those those two conversations by the way i think will be archived right i think that someday people will want to listen to what john bragg has said and what jim irving has said uh at this time um in 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 our history i think that those are going to be something that will be worthwhile for future generations to actually hear and also pairing nicely with john the you know the conversation you had with with lee about uh, his son Lee about uh, you know the tele- telecommunications and the cable industry and and you know the and the, the conversation around broadband in the region right is it was sort of a bit of a one-two punch there Don in terms of you know getting getting both of those uh, family members talking about their very diverse range of businesses right well the thing that I really enjoyed about Lee's conversation is that he really put in very straightforward simple terms the challenges of providing rural broadband. And you know it's it's complicated, and he's t- taken a complicated topic and he he simplified it in a way that everybody who listened to that podcast understood exactly uh, what what's happening, what needs to happen, and uh, he did it in a in a very straightforward manner. And he was very candid, by the way, 
like you know he like he was very candid uh, with his numbers that he talked about, and I thought that that was very helpful uh, for him to be so open in that discussion. And also, you know, be prepared to say even he I mean he was open enough to even say when 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 there was a time when his competitors could provide you know better services than their companies could, right? So he had that kind of honest broker kind of straight up assessment of of that those issues in this region. Which is you know, which is nice to hear from a business leader, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, you know, uh, I really appreciate the fact that Lee was so uh, so willing to to talk about what is really a tough issue for government, right? Uh, the promise that every every household will have high speed internet that's a big promise. It's like saying every every person is going to have their own doctor. Nice to say, hard to do. Uh, and you know, there are other alternatives to provide uh, at least some uh, modem of uh, uh, high speed through satellites, of course, uh, which I think is going to really be part of the solution to provide 100% coverage. And, and we need to recognize that not everybody's going to get fiber to their home. Yeah, and it, it also goes to, and you're interested to know your thoughts on this, David, it goes right to the heart, too, of another big issue on the podcast over you know over the last six months which is how do you balance uh developing you know the rural regions of of uh you know all four provinces versus the you know the your urban growth that's happening right and that was very much central to that conversation you had with lee but also to other conversations you'd have over the months yeah and i'm quite proud that over the course of the last few months i've we've tried to get don mills to evolve in his view on rural development. He used to be much more uh, cranky about rural development. No, I, I, that's, a, that's a stretch. But the bottom line is his Don's view of growth poles or having services concentrated in smaller urban hubs, it makes perfect sense. But I think the argument all along is that even these small rural communities should be trying to survive and not just dying out uh, over the next 20 or 30 years. And so, so yes, you know, that doesn't preclude consolidation of services in small in larger areas, but every community should be working, whether you're Stanley or Minto or Parsboro, uh, to try and create the environment where for what you have in terms of a population base, you can be successful. And so I think rural development really does matter in this region. And you're, most of the growth is going to occur in the urban centers. I think everybody agrees with that. But if there are pockets of opportunity in smaller communities, you know, I think that we have to focus on that. And I think Don has come around a little bit uh, over the last six months. Give me another six and he'll be an advocate for rural development across our region. <laughs> well, you know, let me just say that uh, um, the only way to protect rural communities is by having a successful uh, urban areas around them, because you need to have places that can have year-round jobs um, to support people living in nearby <clears throat> rural areas. That's what I've been advocating. I've never advocated for anybody to move out of a rural area ever. Uh, I just wanted them to consider uh, a reasonable commute for services and for jobs. And that there is a hesitancy in Atlantic Canada because, let's be honest, we've been um, uh, you know, coddled, I guess, by public programs to not have the necessity to commute reasonable distance for services. 
that's why, you know, the health reforms that are happening in New Brunswick, they're not going to close uh, any ER rooms or hospitals, even though that's the right thing to do, because people are conditioned to having those things in their community, even if it makes no financial sense, even if, it, even if they can't uh, staff them because people don't want to live in those communities. It doesn't matter. It has to protect the status quo because that's what people have been, you know, um, led to believe that they need. I, I mean, I remember saying to many groups over the years, you know, um, we've, we've, Atlantic Canadians have uh, been led to believe you have the right to live anywhere you want, right to receive the same uh, services uh, and, um, and, and, that's really that's you know this is a question that people need to a ask themselves is that really true and 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 they have you know because there it requires a lot of subsidies as we talked about in the past and i believe that people should have fair access to services not what i'm getting at but there is there's a point where if you look at new brunswick i forget the number of hospitals david forget off the top of my head but you have too many and uh you know People can argue against that, but I, I've been a fan for some time of, in the healthcare uh, side of the discussion, and I hope we're going to do some podcasts on this area because it's a big interest of mine, where they, they, they need to take a page of what uh, Stephen McNeil did in Cape Breton, where in, in, in the Sydney area, they had four hospitals. Uh, we talked about this before, but it's worth repeating, and two of them were so old, they weren't worth, you know, doing anything with. Uh, they had four emergency uh, rooms within 20 minutes of each other. And oftentimes, uh, some of those emergency rooms were not open because they didn't have staff to keep them open. So what did he do? Uh, he did real uh, health care reform in, in that community. He said, we have to close the two old ones because they're not worth uh, rehabilitating. In, in return, we're going to create uh, two collaborative health care centers for primary care in those communities so that you still have access to primary care in those communities. We're going to expand the existing emergency service of the two remaining hospitals to make up for the two that they were closing. So there was no capacity change, just that you might have to commute a few more minutes to a bigger emergency room. And then finally, and this is part of the solution as well, they, they said, uh, we're going to create some more long-term care beds in that community. I think the 100 maybe was the number that they created. Well, that's real reform. And, 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 and are they getting less health care in that, in that community? Absolutely not. They're getting more. Yeah, but you can't keep some of these aging facilities open. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And let me just say one other thing that a lot of people don't realize. You got me on a rant now. But, uh, you know, the... The, the capital requirements for some of these older hospitals have not been taken into consideration in the cost. You know, you can pay operating costs, but if you have to replace the roof or the ventilation system or the piping, uh, many of these hospitals are old, that, that, that calculation is not in the numbers. And at some point, there's going to be another layer of costs that have to be talked about, David, don't you think? Yeah, it's not my area of expertise, Don. You're more passionate about it than I am, but I do think you need rational approach to public service delivery. We do have a higher, much higher concentration of hospitals in New Brunswick relative to population size. Some argue that has to do with the rural-urban distribution, and you know, but there's all kinds of 
discussions there, but I think the general premise should be that you can have economic growth, you can focus on growing your communities, and also have a conversation about rational delivery of public uh, services like healthcare. They're not independent, right? Uh, and I think, matter of fact, I think they're actually linked better than we think, because one of the reasons why uh, mayors and local leaders are very reluctant to see any kind of healthcare reform is because they're worried about losing one job in healthcare because now healthcare is the largest industry in their area. Right. But if they had other economic development, if they had other growth in other sectors, they'd be more open to a, the discussion, I think, about rationalizing in uh, healthcare services. But when it's the last largest employer in the community, yep. uh, you will fight tooth and nail uh, uh, to keep it. So this idea of economic development and rationalization and effective public services, I think, uh, goes hand in hand. I, I just want to say that uh, I, I sympathize with the issue of the jobs in those communities. But you could repurpose those facilities, as I, as I mentioned. You could create collaborative health centers for providing, um, you know, a, a certain level of service. Maybe not emergency care, but you know, regular stuff that that needs to be done. In communities that have hospitals that are their emergency rooms are mostly closed. Uh, I've given this example many times, but you know, in um, in the in the municipality of Chester, uh, we have a collaborative, a so-called collaborative health center in Chester itself that was that's uh, not being used appropriately. Uh, we have the South Shore Regional Hospital, which is a pretty good hospital and uh, has a lot of services there. And then we have the Fisherman's Memorial in, in Lunenburg, which, uh, you know, it's emergency rooms more often closed than open. It, it has a lot of long-term uh, uh, care people in the hospital taking up the beds that are in there. It's really not a good facility. It, it, you know, it, it, it needs a lot of reinvestment. And, and they would be better off to just say, we're going to turn it into a long-term care facility because that's what it's being used for mainly now. It means that the jobs are going to still be there uh, and, and turn it and, and, and be done with the emergency care because literally 20 minutes away is a much better hospital that could do a better job dealing with emergency care because they have more specialties. you know. Um, and, and, and by the way, some people end up going to emergency care at uh, Fisherman's Memorial, only to be transferred uh, almost immediately to South Shore, uh, you know, hospital because that's where they have the services to deal with urgent issues. So it's you know it's kind of a two-step process. But you know you can't take those jobs away from the community. Repurpose the facility. You know, uh, think about another alternative to uh, primary care delivery that doesn't take that care out of the community, but gives a different kind of, uh, of option. We've, uh, you know, discussed issues like healthcare and, and education as well on the podcast over the last uh, number of months. And I know you sort of partly answered this question already, David and Don, but why, why are discussions of the public public policy issues and public delivery of program issues like healthcare and education so central to conversations about economic growth? Well, I think you can't deny the fact that the public sector is a huge part of the economy. It's actually a larger part of the economy here than it is in the rest of the country on average. So to decouple the two and say, you know, well, you know, so you do decouple it when you're trying to do economic development. Economic development is not about growing the public sector. It's about growing the private sector. But I think whenever you look at these communities, and I've done quite a bit of analysis, you know, many communities across Atlantic Canada, the public sector 
is a huge driver of economic activity, you know, not only healthcare, but even education and, and other public services. So I think those, that's why those things are never going to be totally, you can't decouple them because, you know, even in a, even in a community like Greater Moncton, healthcare is the largest sector, the largest economic driver, even though, you know, it's a, it's, it's got a lot of successful industries, but healthcare has become, and even in Halifax, I mean, you think about the size and the scope of the healthcare sector in Halifax. So I don't think you can decouple the two. I think you have to just have a, a rational view, particularly with healthcare, because we all know that healthcare costs are going to rise significantly because as our boomers retire, as our boomers head into their 70s and ultimately their 80s, that's the time when they need healthcare the most. And you have a wave of those folks heading in that direction right now, including Don and I. Uh, and so the bottom line is we have to figure out how to keep the cost control uh, on that, because if you have economic growth of 2%, uh, that's great. If you have healthcare rising at 5%, uh, it's, you can't, you know, ultimately it's just going to eat up more and more of your GDP or your, of your tax base. So I think, I think those things have to be considered, but ultimately if you're in a community, the, some of the best paying jobs in that community are always going to be the public sector jobs. And one of the points that, that I've made, uh, and I'll make it again, uh, in Canada, roughly, based on Stats Canada's uh, accounting, at least, one out of five people who work, work for the public sector. In Atlantic Canada, that number is at least one in, in four or perhaps a little higher. I, I like to uh, frame that as, you know, we're playing a man short in terms of the numbers of people available to grow the economy. Because the public sector, the you know, it, it does contribute to economic activity, but it's not growing. It's not growing the economy to support services. And it's the private sector that uh, I've always said creates prosperity. It's the public sector that redistributes that prosperity through its various programs and services that it offers. I'm 100 percent okay that with that, but it's it's like having a hockey team. And you're playing against the other side. They put five players on the ice. You you can only put four players on the ice, and you think you 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 hope that you have a chance to tie the game, but you don't have much chance of winning the game if you play short all the time. And that's that's the situation that we've had in Atlantic Canada. And somehow government needs to uh, understand that. And maybe and this is a broader discussion, but there are some things that uh, that perhaps don't have to be done by government anymore. You know that could be outsourced to the private sector. That would would balance out more equally the number of people who work in the private sector versus the public sector. And uh, I give I've given this example before, but it's probably relevant here. I remember, uh, uh, you know, in my business, uh, we you know we had a we were doing outbound uh, uh, data collection calls uh, as part of our business, and we had created some jobs for that. But you know, it was it was irregular because uh, it depended on the you know the studies that we were doing. Uh, so we decided to go after uh, the reservation information reservation service for uh, Nova Scotia at the time. They were looking at outsourcing it, and and we won the contract, and we we became the uh, you know the reservation information service for the province for many many years. And people said, well, you know, what difference does that make? Well, here's the thing. We leveraged that business that we got from the province. Uh, you know, we ended up building a, a company that had 600 employees. And a big part of that is because they outsourced, you know, a piece of business that only had 15, 15 employees, but it gave us all kinds of credibility on inbound and inbound work. We ended up winning 
the British Columbia information line as well and set up a business in, 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 uh, BC as a result. So you, you can see how sometimes outsourcing can lead to a bigger opportunity in other jurisdictions as a result of that, um, outsourcing. And I know nobody wants to talk about that, but you know, the, there is some opportunity in each of the four provinces to do that. I think it's an opportunity. We should discuss this more moving forward, Don, because I do think, if you think about that big IBM example in in Nova Scotia, where the government dangled a big chunk of business, as long as IBM would build sort of a national center of excellence in Halifax. So you can actually use government business as a base to develop an export sector. uh, And if you can do that, then you get a double whammy. So I think maybe moving forward, you and I should have guests on to have a conversation about what's, what government activity that's done in-house uh, could be done easily uh, out-house, to use a, a terrible <laughs> word, uh, but, but still with the same effect, because you still have to have high-quality public services. People demand that and people expect that. Uh, but if it can be delivered by the private sector and if you can get additional economic benefits out of it, it makes a lot of sense. And you will see, Mark, that that's what happens with insights is we take these discussions and we move off in a whole bunch of different tangents. But I think that's partly why it's fun. Yeah. And another one uh, that I think you'll you'll explore in, definitely in future episodes. But I'm you know I'm thinking in particular of it because we're just coming out of the uh, the you know the Glasgow uh, conference on uh, on climate change. Um, and you've already had a couple of interesting conversations. Is is the conversation around energy development in the region and the environment and the economy. And you've had some particularly interesting conversations, one with Kathy Bennett uh, from Newfoundland, uh, but curious to see how, you know, your reflections on the conversations you've already had on kind of the environment and energy and the economy and, and with people like Kathy and, and how you think they'll look going forward to some of these other conversations you'll have. It's $14 billion industry across Atlantic Canada, the energy sector, that's just the production distribution and transmission of energy. That's refinery in St. John. That's the offshore oil and gas industry. That's all of the coal-fired power plants in Nova Scotia, the renewable energy wrapped all up in a bow. That's a $14 billion and 35,000 direct jobs. If you roll in indirect jobs, you're looking at 80,000 people that are supported by the energy sector directly uh, and indirectly across Atlantic Canada. It's a huge issue. And that's one of the things we have to uh, uh, think about is can we maintain such a dominant economic driver in this region, even as we decarbonize. And I think you're right. I think Don and I need to dig into that a little further. What are those new sectors of opportunity? Are there going to be hydrogen production? Uh, Is it going to be uh, more renewable? Is it going to be SMR, small modular reactor nuclear? Uh, Are we going to continue to see some oil and gas in, in Newfoundland and Labrador and possibly even Nova Scotia? So we need to have those conversations, I think, Uh, because it's going to be a dominant global issue moving forward. I teach a course in energy economics at UNB, and I can tell you right now, we have only scratched the surface. We are using more globally. We are using more uh, fossil fuel energy now than we were 20 years ago, even though we've rolled out all of this renewable energy in the interim, but it hasn't been enough to even offset the increase in energy demand. So to go from now to almost zero by 2050 is going to be a massive revolution. And so Atlantic Canada needs to figure out, A, how do we take advantage of that? And how do we not kill our economy uh, in the process? So, and I think those are two good questions that uh, we need to deal with moving forward. I would also add that uh, I think based on the conversations we've had, David, about energy already, it's clear that uh, the public really doesn't understand uh, kind of the challenges in the timetable 
um, you know, that, that, that we're under. Uh, there's no way that we're going to eliminate fossil fuels by 2030. People might actually think that it's not, it's not happening. It's, there's no possible way of doing that. And we have to recognize that we're going to be with using fossil fuels for the, some foreseeable future. And, and, and it's going to take a while to find replacements for some of it. And some of it has not even been developed yet. We haven't even developed the systems or the ways of doing it. So, you know, setting more realistic uh, expectation in the public is something that I think our politicians really need to consider because they're setting up false expectations uh, that uh, really can't be achieved. And, uh, you know, I think our our few conversations we've had on this, for anybody listening, would come away uh, understanding that it's not as easy as people say, say it is to get off fossil fuels. And it, I don't think we're being honest about the cost too, right? So you got 110,000 homes in Nova Scotia that are heated by fuel oil. That ha- all, how all of that will have to be converted. You know, is it next 10 years? Is it the next 20 years? Is it the next 30 years? I don't know. But at some point, and is that going to be the homeowner that's going to have to pay and expend all that cost? And then if you have the cost of carbon taxes and fuel stand, clean fuel standards, we're going to be paying a lot more for energy. Uh, at the pumps, in our homes, and I think people need to get ready and they need to be prepared to pay for these costs and hopefully not have a big backlash because then you have this political reverberation where I don't want to pay $2 a litre gasoline, Hmm. right? And so, well, go get yourself an electric car. But those are the conversations I think need to happen and we can stimulate some of that here on the Insights podcast. Yeah, because there's there's the consumer side conversation to be had, and how well you know willing people are to 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 make changes or pay more, and then you have some of those bigger stories around what are the renewable developments and where is where does you know fossil fuel development sit inside of that in whatever you call a transition or whatever language you use. I mean, I thought recently this this week, uh, you know, Re- Repsol completed its its uh, you know transaction with Irving Oil and took over. Right. The LNG facility in in St. John uh, just earlier this week, and you know those debates around natural gas and and pipelines are still there, even though you know even though they're very difficult conversations that uh, that didn't actually end up you know going anywhere. Um, you know what what would be the future for you know Repsol and St. John and the future of, of exporting gas if that ever becomes a possibility. So, you know, I find, you know, those conversations to be still very interesting, you know, and they're not they're not very popular these days around around pipeline development and natural gas development. So between 2010 and 2018, Atlantic Canada imported five point eight billion dollars worth of natural gas and natural gas liquids. All of that came in even though we're sitting on a pile of natural gas right underneath the ground. So I think it's an offshore Nova Scotia and so on. So I, and even offshore Newfoundland, right? There's a huge fields of, of gas as, along with the oil. So I think that, that you can't ignore that conversation about whether or not we should be pursuing our domestic supply. We do have this 2050 thing sort of sitting out there. But again, I mean, we're importing billions of dollars of gas into this region to be used in our homes and in our industries uh, in our in, in our hospitals, you know, across the economy, uh, and I think it's 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 worthy of discussion. I think Repsol is going to have a good business. They're, that LNG business, I think, now with the prices going up, uh, I think they're going to continue to serve this region and New England from St. John. I think they're going to end up actually surprisingly having a pretty good business out of St. John, but I could be wrong. 
Well, the other thing that I just want to mention is uh, on that conversation, and we talked a little bit about this, and we need to talk more about it, is the renegotiation of equalization is coming uh, up in the not-too-distant future. You already see what's going on in Alberta where they did a referendum and whether or not, you know, equalization should be eliminated. That's never going to happen, but it's certainly going to be renegotiated. And I can't imagine a circumstance where energy-rich provinces that have been contributing the most to equalization will not insist that other regions develop their own resources and take the same risk that the energy-producing provinces are as a condition of sharing equalization of their energy-driven revenues. That's going to be a big discussion. I can't imagine it, uh, you know, so going any other way. So, you know, if New Brunswick is going to receive uh, equalization, David, they're going to say, well, what about those uh, gas reserves? You're not developing your own gas reserves. You want you want our revenue from our gas, but you don't want to use your own? No, that's not happening. You have to develop your own. You have to make a contribution. And I think that that's a conversation that's going to happen. It's going to be very interesting in Quebec that receives such such a high amount of equalization, but unwilling to you know, open up an energy corridor uh, to the, to deliver energy across the country. So, some big conversations coming up when it comes to renegotiating um, equalization. I think. Before we uh, we wrap and and have a quick look ahead, um, are there any other issues that we've uh, you've touched on in the last six months that that you wanted to bring up? And we we brought up uh, you know we've talked about labor force, we talked about population growth. And you know, rural versus uh, urban economic development. Uh, are there other uh, conversations that that stand out in your mind? So I would say, like Don's cranky about economic development in general. I'm not positioning Don as an overly cranky guy, but he is cranky. He thinks we spend too much and we're not getting value for it. And he said it many times, and he's got some this logic to that. So I think we've had some of those discussions with with economic development uh, folks around the region. Um, uh, you know, we think talk about the discussion with Rory around the bioscience cluster on PEI. So we do have some successful examples, but I do think that's another sort of meta theme of the Insights podcast is how do we get strong, accountable and successful economic development in regions and local communities across Atlantic Canada? So we've started to scratch the surface on that. And we have, uh, Don, we have conversations coming up. Uh, with other economic development agencies in the future. But I think that's an issue. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars across Atlantic Canada on economic development between the federal, provincial, and local governments. Uh, and now we need to make sure that moving forward, those dollars are spent wisely and having uh, success in the region. So if if you uh, define cranky as being, you know, demanding of uh, measures of success, then I'm cranky because we don't have any that I can see in most uh, economic development a- agencies. And, uh, you know, how, how can you judge uh, the payback uh, on the investment if you don't have some measures? And uh, so I, I, you know, stand up and be counted in terms of the things that you're making a difference on. And there's lots of easy measures. Like, you know, uh, if you look at uh, communities like Moncton, they're doing it, right? What are they doing? They're counting the assessment increases that they're generating through their economic activity as providing more resources for them to provide public services. Okay, that's easy to do. It's easy to count. There are things that you can count. But people uh, in some of these agencies are afraid to be held accountable, in my opinion. And they go on years and years and years. And you look at what they've accomplished 
and they haven't accomplished anything except meet on a, on a lot of occasions and talk about really great things, but nothing gets done. So just accountability is what makes me cranky, David. And uh, <laughs> I guess I'll continue to be cranky going forward until those things are in place. <laughs> you see what I'm doing there, Mark. I'm trying to position this as good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exactly. I'm the good cop and Don's the bad cop in this scenario. Right. So we'll see yeah. We'll see if I can get away with that moving forward. No, I, 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 as, as, a, as, as a person who's long been a good cop, David, I, I recognized exactly what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, half these groups are my clients. See, that's the beauty of Don. He's, he's above it all. He doesn't need to make revenue that's because right. he's, a, that's he's right. a successful entrepreneur and he's, he's, uh, he's, not, he's not beholden to these economic development organizations the way the way i might be at some level so i'm just partially kidding about that you know speaking honestly with my clients about the importance of good metrics around what they're doing is what i've been trying to do for the last yeah, 10 years i know that yeah now i know obviously uh, you guys are very sort of purpose driven in your approach to this podcast and really want to have these rich conversations about economic development and you know where we're falling short where we're succeeding uh, and really, you know, push the conversation ahead in that way and and uh, and be productive and forward thinking. So, you know, to wrap up, looking looking ahead, like what are the kinds of conversations you want to continue to have the new areas that you want to explore? Uh, well, there's lots of topics. I mean, you know, I put a, a list together of 20, 30 people that I'd really be interested in talking about. And every time I think of somebody, I think of somebody else. Everybody, you know, so there's plenty of conversations that need to happen on a variety of topics. I already mentioned that I'm really interested in, in bringing some people from the uh, health field into the discussion uh, to talk about what they see as the kind of reforms that need to be done from inside the inside the system. And there, there are some people that I know that uh, I think would be willing to uh, to talk frankly about the sort of things that they see need to change from an inside point of view, not from a management point of view, but from a you know, uh, an operation point of view, I think that that might be useful and uh, something that, you know, um, hopefully we can do early in the new year. Uh, the other thing that David and I are really interested in doing is talking to more entrepreneurs and getting their stories out there. There's a ton of good uh, news stories about entrepreneurs. We've got a long list of people that uh, I know David and I would like to talk to and get their get their ideas and this gets back to a, a conversation that we recently had um, uh, with Andrew McLaughlin uh, of uh, uh, major drilling. Uh, you know, we have very few public uh, publicly traded uh, companies. In fact, I just looked at the list uh, uh, this morning. Uh, Atlantic Canada has a, about one percent of all the listed companies on the TSX and the TSX venture. One percent. Our, our economy is, uh, our, we make up about 7% of the economy, yet only 1%. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a challenge. That's a, that's a problem. Why is that? There's, and we talked about some of those reasons. But, you know, we need to talk to, to successful people and, and, and share their lessons and their ideas with others. And, that, and that's one of the other things that we intend to do in the new year. Yeah, I would agree with Don. I'd love the conversation with entrepreneurs. I think celebrating entrepreneurship, exposing the listeners to that um, and then sort of zooming in on those specific policy themes like healthcare, uh, people attraction, uh, specific sectors of growth like like new sources of energy that we just talked about. I, I'd like us also to, you know, incorporate more feedback from listeners. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so we're talking potentially about adding, a, you know, a questions section where Don and I would try to answer questions from listeners. We do want this to be responsive. If nobody's listening, if it's just John, Don and I talking in an echo chamber with, with uh, you know, Mark sort of listening from a closet, it's not really <laughs> beneficial to anybody. It's nice. It's stimulating. I love talking to Don. I could talk to him all day. But let's try to widen the audience, get as many people engaged and listening as possible. And so we're going to try to do things like that, get feedback from listeners, uh, try to incorporate their questions into our, into our conversation and try to be as responsive and, and helpful in this discussion about how do we have thriving and prosperous provinces and communities across Atlantic Canada in the years ahead. And I'm con committed to this long term, and I think Don is as well, as long as it's adding value to, uh, to the listeners. David, I, and just for the listener, David, David's teasing me about uh, I'm podcasting out of my closet <laughs> in Uptown St. John for 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 quality control uh, reasons and sound reasons. And uh, and as I said, David, it's getting a little cold in this closet as it as it gets towards the end of November. And, is that a uh, metaphor? Is that a metaphor for anything, Mark? I'm not sure. <laughs> there's, no, there's no insulation here on the on on the walls. Um, but I do know uh, because it's an old St. John house that used to be heated by coal. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I've, you know, I've really enjoyed your conversations. I'm looking forward to hearing more of them. You know, a number of them stand out for me too. The, you know, the, the entrepreneur ones are, are, have been excellent ones to listen to. Cause I even think too, you know, as we close David and Don, even conversations with the Malcolm Bricklin and conversations with, uh, with Frank McKenna, right. These kind of ambitious, uh, kind of global, global thinkers in terms of they see how they developing the economy. Now with Malcolm, there was as many lessons learned there, David, as, as successes. <laughs> but those are good too, to have those kinds of, of conversations as well, right? Absolutely. Wins and losses. Let's, let's figure out what works and let's hopefully inform policymakers uh, moving forward. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much, uh, guys, for chatting with me, broadcasting from Uptown St. John in, in a in a closet <laughs> and and you too because we don't situate you guys all the time right now don you are where right now are you in chester basin or are you in halifax uh i'm in halifax today yep okay. yep enjoying the city wonderful yep. things happening in the city great place to be and and david in moncton uh but also soon to move i think yeah so we're Probably, well, we are moving out to uh, a place on the shore, on the water. It's almost like a rite of passage here. You you raise your family in the city and then you move to the shore. Uh, but we will desperately miss living downtown. It's incredibly um, uh, wonderful uh, to live in an urban core. You're close to everything. So I think we'll end up probably cheating the way Don Mills has done and have an apartment in the city and have the best of both worlds, have a space on the water and a place in the city because I think you just can't beat uh, living in downtown or Mark, in your case, uptown, you're close to everything. You, you know, it's, it's just a very efficient way to live. But the lure of the water, whether you're in Halifax or whether you're in St. John or whether you're in Moncton, the lure of the ocean or the water is always there. And it captured us, my wife and I. Well, and, you know, I think to be true for, for all three of us, that one, one of the benefits to living in this region is being able to enjoy both, right? Because I did many podcasts out of the cottage that I lived in on the St. John River all summer. So I get that combination of city living and then uh, a bit of, a bit of rural and small town. And I know you do Don, Don with uh, downtown Halifax and, and the Chester area. 
Yeah, it's a great combination and uh, more people should uh, discover it from other parts of Canada. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, it's great catching up with you and I look forward to the next 35 episodes. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere and Tyler McLean helped produce this episode. You can subscribe to the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.